welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. All right, folks, we're back. Uh, if you see the familiar face, it's because we are round two of the Petronas podcast with Mark Rosano. We just recorded a podcast on Monday of this week. Um, today is Friday, October 22nd, and we really had to do this. October 22nd, 2021, WTI is 8368, uh, NatGas is 522, and Brent is pushing that. We're looking at uh, 8548. We're, we may be pushing this uh, this 86 handle uh, today on, on Brent. Uh, but we, I brought Mark back because we basically weren't able to properly finish our conversation and we sort of cut it short to a degree. Uh, it was very good and we're going to get a lot of promoting out of this. We've already had some feedback that on the podcast, so it was great. But we sort of closed the last 15 minutes talking about the macro and uh, Mark and I could easily go on just on uh, offline on talking about a number of things. And I figured, why don't we just put it back on the podcast because I would love to talk uh, macro China and sort of recap this energy crisis and really help listeners understand why the why is the macro, why, why do I rant on about China so much and why do I bring it up? And uh, more drilling has pointed out to me that sometimes I need to put bookends on my China comments because I just sort of interject them and throw them out and that's very valid. So we're going to sort of, you know, explain this China piece of why this matters. If you are drilling an oil well, if you are the driller or you're the completion engineer or you are the operator, why does the China crisis actually, you know, the Evergrande issue or anything going on in China actually matter to you? And that's because it's eventually going to come down the pipeline and, and potentially hit prices. But we'll get into that. So that's that's one, macro China recapping. Two, I would like to talk about inflation um, because it's obviously a, a very, very real thing. And um, Jerome Powell has made some comments. We've had lots of stuff coming out of the Fed. We've had a lot of lots of folks on CBC, Bloomberg and the like talking about inflation. And we are certainly seeing, you know, mortgage rates actually tick up. Um, so there's there's a lot going on with that. And I think the uh, not only the consumer price index, which which we've seen, and we've seen the inflation numbers um, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but we've actually seen the Fed beige book came out and said, hey, prices are high. So this whole transitory thing is um, babies going out with bathwater. And there are a lot of implications for that, especially given that uh, the White House doesn't look like they're going to be able to pass half the stuff that they want to. And the last thing I would like to talk about is something that's been uh, an evolving topic. We're certainly not going to solve it on this podcast. But it's something I, I, I'm fascinated by, and it's, it's really this, uh, this investor pressure and how it's impacting the role of investors and how they're impacting the market, not just from the public side, but also the private side, and how that actually impacts how people are, are spending money and investing in the space, and partly why we actually are seeing a shortfall of investment in, in E&P, and why we may have a shortfall for gas and oil globally, potentially, if people aren't investing. And I think it's this, I just sort of... I, I brought it up with the with the podcast with Chris Wright and really sort of, you know, kind of yelled at operators for um, not having enough balls to basically just go to town and, and drill for oil if that's what you're going to do. And I think people are, public companies are sort of caught um, in this tricky spot about what they're actually, what they actually want to do. And they have this pressure or this, this, this ESG monkey sort of on their back that they have to deal with, but it's not super quantifiable. So with those three topics... Hopefully we can talk about those, and I know we'll probably go sideways on a number of different things, yeah. which is totally fine, uh, and we'll recap it. But let's let's go back to this and sort of just start where we left off in the last podcast, which is the macro China piece. I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. I think you made very clear that that 
that revised 4.9% GDP number was a, a, a little hogwash. Um, and it was probably a lot lower. And I think maybe actually talking to people about that, when when there's a lot of perma bears on China, I've been certainly one of those folks that if you've studied China for you know many, many years, you just don't have a lot of faith in their in the data because you know that it's it's massaged. Um, and it always comes out to what they say it's going to come out to. So it's hard to believe it. And then you actually, if you do, um, there are actually a few really good podcasts out there. Uh, um, South China Morning Post, not perfect, but they actually do give you like some anecdotal information of stuff that's on the ground inside China. Um, and when you start listening to and understanding all that, it just doesn't add up. Um, so what you hear from what Bloomberg's reporting at night, some of their articles are great, but it just doesn't seem to add up. So um, do you have any sort of data points or thoughts on that, um, you know, just that 4.9% GDP, and then we can dovetail this into the Evergrande thing, sure. which actually has a bond payment due this weekend. Yeah, the uh, so thanks for having me on again. There's a lot of, uh, I, I dedicate one of the whole segments of the econ show to Asia with uh, about 90% of it probably going to China at least three times a week. And and it's because it's obviously such a, a behemoth when you look at the commodity space and what's going on. And and on top of the ones that you had mentioned, Trivium is another one that is fantastic in putting out some real-time information. And then China uh, Beige Book is another good one with um, and they put out a lot of uh, a lot of good things that you have to pay for, but also they're good to follow on on, uh, on Twitter because they do have a, a a very good handle on what's happening on the ground. And now one of the things that that you talked about when you when you look at you know, it's easy to be bearish on China. And, and that's always been the case. And when I've been investing in China, this, like, essentially, when I put out this, this whole uh, piece on February 11, talking about the Chinese debt bubble, the biggest pushback to me was, Mark, this is great, but this is 2011. It's like, you're absolutely correct. Everything I said in this February 11, 2021 podcast, I could have said in February 11th of, 2020, of 2011. And the difference and is every year between there, right? And the difference is timing. You know, at you know, is right. it a hundred one go cities or is it ten thousand and one? Yep. Is it is it uh, is it you know a a debt to GDP level of a hundred percent or three hundred percent? It all comes down to running room, and and who can you get? Who is your buyer of last resort? So some of the numbers I'm going to throw out just to just to keep it nerdy. When you look at the Chinese property market, in, like the largest asset class globally. So when you think about the, the Chinese property market, it's 60 trillion US dollars in this, in this entity. To give you an idea, the US is 34. Now yeah. let's take it to who is your buyer of last resort? And for them, that has been the consumer. If you look from 2009 to 2021, China has really been trying to get the consumer involved. And then that increased last year with the dual circulation strategy, increasing local consumption. Then they doubled down on it, or well, I should say tripled down on it in 2021 with common prosperity, making sure everybody has enough and making sure that they can all spend. So then when you look at the housing market represents 62% of household assets. In the, now, just to compare that, in the US, it's 23%. So that, now- just Hold, hold on the, those data points because they're, they're really, really important. And you throw out some really, really good data points because the numbers are basically when people say- housing, the housing market, like the, the, or the property sector, we talk about housing, we say, why does it matter? It's the property sector in China is roughly every, one third of GDP. So that's yes. 60 trillion US China numbers. And I, I think the people aren't completely certain of that 60, that you just threw out the 62% number, that 62% of 
wealth is in of households is in the, in these homes. And mm-hmm. I mentioned this, uh, there's, there is a good, um, I think it is the inside China podcast several weeks ago. There was a good, some good commentary on a breakdown of these numbers. I've heard a, it, the numbers range pretty wide of well, how, but- how much of the actual homeowner, like how much of them have in mortgages because they didn't historically, how much of them are sort of bought outright. And, um, but we do know that the Chinese or many Chinese don't actively invest the way we do in the stock market and equities so that it is housing because housing prices have just gone up and up and up. And so that if, if your average Chinese citizen has 62% of their wealth is in their household, that's a problem for a $60 trillion market with one third of your economy. And it's interesting because it's not even just their own home because Evergrande, right. just to use Evergrande as, as an example, they'll issue essentially a REIT, but they'll do it directly to consumers. So they can go to a consumer and say, hey, we're going to guarantee 12% growth if you give us X. And then that's going to, and then you buy the right to this building. So if you could live in building A and they're putting up building B and they'll go to all of the homeowners in building A and say, hey, do you want to uh, participate in the raise and the financing of this? And it's essentially just a REIT that is going directly to the consumer. And a lot of a lot of companies do this in China, not just retail, uh, real, real estate. They goes right. across multiple different pieces. And this is where you get this leverage and this torque of, well, how are you going to pay people back? Because you, when you talk about a bailout, the question is, who are you bailing out? Are you bailing right. out the debt holders? Are you bailing out the consumer? Are, are like what part of the bailout? And like you, you brought up the uh, interest payment, which technically they've they've now set aside that eighty three point five uh, million for they payout. Say, uh, they, they say that, or the, the yeah, no, exactly. They say that. I need to see they're the like, wire yeah. though. Exactly. I need to see I the wire on I Sunday. I number transfer because I was like, that's convenient. You, it's like yeah. this is your last. Got to do this. And and this is an interest. So Evergrande is the second largest property developer. There's many, and they have subsidiaries underneath them, which have already had trouble. Fantasia is a subsidiary, I believe, of Country Garden. Country Garden's the biggest one. We're, you're hearing about Evergrande, and people keep saying, is this the layman moment? And I keep saying it doesn't doesn't matter whether it's the layman moment or not, because you're not going to get the timing right, because it's it's China. But it's it's all this together. But it's those those so the local government debt is a huge problem right and the local right. governments are basically at this point to where they can't really lend any more they can't really give any more to these property developers and they essentially if if Xi Jinping in China actually wants to keep their economy roaring they would mm-hmm. have to keep this going and what would they would end up creating is they would further be creating this asset bubble so you end right. up having local governments who can't can't continue to lend and they can't um i mean they've sold land to the property developers, the property developers have not necessarily paid them for that land. The um, homeowners who have not had an, a, a flat or an apartment actually built have already paid Evergrande and all these other uh, property developers. Construction guys are are the people without jobs. That's a real thing too. You have to do some mm-hmm. digging in the weeds and listening to various podcasts and nerding out to hear the people who are unemployed. We're already hearing that youth unemployment in China is massive. And it's 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 skyrocketing, and we have major issues with with the youth side and and not having enough kids and babies and everything in China, which is which is their own fault. But that's a whole nother issue. But the reality is, like you have on this, if your if your property development is one third of your economy, and I put this in context, in the U.S. it was only one fifth during the housing crisis. So right. our property sector, when you say that thirty four trillion in the at the U.S. at the time when we had when we took down the global economy, it was only a fifth of the of our of our US economy of our GDP. So it's a much bigger entity for the Chinese economy and I say that not to say like Chinese Evergrande China's Evergrande is going to take down the global economy. It's that it represents such a big portion of their economy and it's 
a big piece of the engine that drives all right. this. So it's driving the construction, it's driving people's jobs. And that's how people are going to work. And there are a lot of people that are not employed right now because of this uh, or not getting their flats that they or apartments that they already purchased. And, you know, China's just trying to figure out who's going to get paid back first or, or who's going to get paid back at all. And it, I don't think it's going to be the foreign bondholders for this, well, you know, $83 million. You bring up, William, you bring up some good points because when you look at Evergrande, and I said it from the beginning, uh, you know, it's not the Lehman event, like, you know, we didn't know the Lehman event was going to be the Lehman event till it exactly. was the Lehman event. Exactly. And, and the reason why is because when, when I was, when I was a, a baby on wall street at the time, you know, Bear Stearns caught people by surprise. Like that was shocking. That was, oh my God, like they, they're really not going to open their doors on Sunday. And Morgan Stanley, I was at Morgan Stanley investment management at the time. And we had a huge amount of, uh, c- connection just based on what we had lent to Bear Stearns, what they owed us, what they had sent us in collateral. And if Bear Stearns went under, so did Morgan Stanley at that time, because the collateral they had given us was so far below investment grade that in a fire sale, it wouldn't have been even close to covering what our exposure was. So that was something that that was shocking. And then you know, JP Morgan obviously stepped in, the market kept rallying for another six months, then Countrywide went bankrupt. Everyone assumed, oh, it's been it's been ring fenced, and then that whole sector rallied thirty percent. Some of those yes, bonds went up rally. over a hundred percent, and then Lehman happened. Now Lehman, for those that were in in Wall Street, Lehman was the most telegraphed, most expected event in terms of who was going to drop next. But that was what kind of caught everyone. Was like, oh, this 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 is bad. This this is expanding, and then that became this, the Lehman event that we know it to be. So when you look at what's happening in, in China, is it going to be Evergrande? Is it going to be Fantasia? Is it going to be like, which one is going to be the the one to drop us? And the answer is we don't really know, but you bring up a great point on local financing. So there's two vehicles that were created, the special purpose bonds, and then the local government financial vehicles or LGFVs. Mm-hmm. So when you look at what was used during this time period, which is why I say 2021 is different than 2011, when you look at that new leg of investing that they were forced to do uh, in, from 2016 to 2018, then by forced, I mean the stimulus that came through at the end of 16, you saw this big push into a lot of these bonds, a lot of these, these new, like as you said, they had sold uh, to property developers, they were going to build all this infrastructure. And then by the time 2019 came around, all of this, the, these, these bonds and these, uh, these vehicles are being financed with tax revenue. And they're being financed with tax revenue because they can't even, they can barely cover the interest expense with what was being thrown off by these projects, let alone principal. So now you have a situation where these governments were struggling to just finance the, you know, just employment. So now the PBOC has created uh, avenues to inject cash directly into them and essentially finance these these vehicles that are completely underwater. So when they came out and said, you have to keep lending now, they're like, well, we can't because you you were already supporting us. We then went through 2020 and you cut taxes, you cut tariffs, you cut all of essentially what we needed to just stay afloat. You're now backstopping us. But now look at tourism revenue. Look Look at revenue in general. And that comes to what you're talking about with the consumer and how damaged is the consumer. And they were never really strong to begin with. No. And, and that, now that, they're continuing to weaken. Yes. And they're continuing to weaken. And that consumer is the other piece of why 
why people tend to be these perma bears in China is because you have no good data on the consumer. I think we mentioned in the last podcast, if it wasn't on there, if it was offline, of literally the data on these these farmers. It was like, oh, rural Chinese farmers are doing great. And it was like, are you like, where where on earth did that come from? Like, it makes no sense. And these we know youth unemployment is high. And, and I, I always try to bring people back of like the layman layman event and crises. Like if you if you've ever studied economic crises, it's super fascinating. You could you could do a whole PhD on it alone. But economic crises and, and even this this uh, energy crunch and energy crisis that that we're, we're seeing right now, it's not it's never one thing, right? The, you know the um, BP oil spill didn't happen. Macondo didn't happen because one thing failed. It's a number of things taken together. And actually, most people know about all this stuff. You know the people on the you know the rig of of they actually knew what was going on with the BP oil spill. They didn't understand everything taken together. Same thing for Lehman Brothers. I mean, it wasn't just Lehman Brothers went under. I mean, you had a, a uh, you had a very un- insolvent mortgage situation and you had a lot of people overstretched and and when that went under and you adjusted <clears throat> mortgage rates and they went up and it you know people ha- who had multiple homes and did not invest properly I mean it took things out and it impacted the economy um the same thing in China I think what's really tricky is that <clears throat> because they're not transparent because they you don't have capital inflows and capital outflows the way we do in the U.S. And the reason why people like, you know, the world likes U.S. Treasuries is because of the deep and liquid market and it's transparent. And so people put their money in it, especially during, I mean, everybody thought that the U.S. was going to crash and we were going to, the dollar was going to go away and, and it was the rise of China, the decline of the U.S. in 2008 because of this. Now, there are a lot of reasons that they actually still viewed it that way and I think they were wrong. They're facing it now. But I mean, they... It was essentially like, well, the U.S. is the U.S. is failing. Still, we were the cleanest, dirtiest shirt in the closet, and people threw their money into the U.S. dollar, into U.S. Treasuries because it, they believed it to be more stable than anything else. I think the tricky part with China is that you, one, you don't have that transparency. You ha- you still have this overwhelming exuberance um, by investors who see it as it's huge. It's a huge country, massive population, and therefore, if we're going to have growth in anything, if we want. If I'm JP Morgan or I'm Goldman or I'm whoever, I need to set up a wealth management office there. I need to do this. And you still hear this by every conference, every investor, people always, it's always like, well, China is, a, we're worried, but, but, and there's this huge but. And it's like, well, this is how I'd invest. And the caution I have to everyone is that you, this has never played out. You've never seen, like, this is the Chinese story that's just playing out. And in history, when communist governments control the economy, it has never performed well for an investor. It's never performed well for, for the economy. And so you're actually seeing it of getting really convoluted and messy where that common prosperity thing, which was mentioned, and it's not like this stuff isn't televised. There's a, um, there's a, a blog called Tracking People's Daily, which is great. And it's the guy that he was on a CSIS podcast that I listened to. And he actually just summarizes the People's Daily um, every day. And he goes out. So, so you can actually see. And it, it's, it's just what the Communist Party is, is, is basically touting to people. So if you want to know what Xi Jinping is you know, emphasizing each day. It's in the People's Daily. He, he, they're transparent about it. They trans transcribe his speeches. I actually have, you know, the governance one, two, and three of Xi Jinping's speeches. You can read them. That's what they, and it doesn't matter if it's a, it's their translation. It's, it's what they want you to see. And they're not mincing words on what they're actually doing. And so this common prosperity thing, I think is very confusing for the market. It's not really confusing, I think, for Xi Jinping and for the Chinese government, because one, it is a maneuvering thing. I think they're trying to actually make sure that the, the 
the lower end of the bracket it has enough money in and is happy. But the problem is they had so much growth based upon all these wealthy people and folks like Jack Ma. And now, they, now they're going after folks like that. And you can't have it both ways. You cannot have this massive economic growth and everything going crazy. And then you have all these crackdowns. And we also don't know what the people feel like about we don't know how this is playing out on the ground. Do people like the common prosperity thing or are they concerned that they can't get wealthy? I mean, it's what people feel like in America when you're rising and you're going up in the income bracket and then you hear that your taxes are going to go up if you ever get wealthy. They're going to be, you know, 80 percent and nobody can make over 400,000. That's how you feel of somebody who's trying to climb the ladder. There's there's no point. And I, I think that's a reality in China is we have no idea what's actually how people are actually thinking on the ground. And, and that's uh, an interesting uh you know, topic when you look at the shift in policy. So Dang, when he his, when he came to power and he was looking at things, his whole statement was let some get rich. And that was his whole thing. We have to let people make money. We need to stimulate and we have to reward, you know, the the entrepreneur essentially. And that that really became a founding drive of where the, where they really started to see this growth. And now the pivot has been that some have gotten rich and now it's time to share the wealth. And that's where you're getting this big pivot. And, and one of the things that we've seen, and we've seen it in the USSR, we've seen it before, when, th- when times get tough, you either get less communist or you double down and you get more communist. And they are doubling down, getting more communist, not less. Because they're saying, well, you didn't do enough. Oh, you didn't sacrifice. You, know, you comrade, you're the problem. And that's where you're starting to see some of this friction as you were talking about how does the consumer really feel about this? And depending on who you speak with, obviously it's going to vary. And 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 let's just say what lines of communication you're talking over, I, because they have ears everywhere. In terms of like, where is this fear? Because when you look at the consumer in general, you know consumption has really faltered. And I, I think the China Beige Book does a really good job where they actually snapshot and they they cut it and they take it offline and they show you it's like oh they went back and they took down 2019 numbers, so it looks like they increased year over year but it's actually because they took down the year before. But then they don't take down the the actual GDP number that it was calculated off of. So they're just playing with numbers and playing and with math. Super, super common in, the, in Chinese data. So it's really hard. Like they'll just remove data if it doesn't fit the narrative or whatever. It just gets removed. And it also is a like a function of how messy the their economy can be. So when we talked in the last podcast about like the, the coal reductions in certain places. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I said that it's a hatchet, not a scalpel or like a, you know, a hacksaw. I mean, it is not, you don't just go like the top down measures that somebody says, go do this. And it used to work for GDP. It'd be like, go hit the GDP target. And so the local governments would province would be like, yeah, well, we're going to go get above that GDP target. So we're going to, you're going to roll this coal. We're going to do everything. We're going to grow. We're going to give all this property developers money. And then you grew like crazy and it was huge, but you had all these repercussions, including pollution and all kinds of things. And so they, but all that data is that if you, if you read uh, that book, China goes green, um, it's, it's a really, really good book in terms of the, the stories you get in terms of like how things play out on the ground. And that book along with, um, and I mentioned a couple, there's third revolution and there's a couple others just to give you like a snapshot in time of what's, what's actually taking place within China. But the reality is these guys, the, we never hear about 
we never actually hear through all this literature, through all this research, through everything, we never hear about the consumer. We never hear about the state of like how the Chinese consumer is spending. And for years, what you have heard is that that's that's the shift that the, the China is doing, right? That's how they're going to continue to grow and be prosperous mm-hmm. is that instead of exporting to America and Europe, they're going to focus on it's going to be the U.S. consumer, this wealthy, the wealthy Jack Ma's and, and those people that are going to be buying within China and everybody's going to be rising these poverty, you know, you know, raising up these poverty standards and they're going to spend. They have lifted a ton of people out of poverty. So there's something to be said about that. But in tandem now with with forced labor and all kinds of other issues, I think we really have to we have to put that in context. And I actually don't think you can you can believe all of the data in terms of this this lifting. But the problem is without that transparency on the consumer, it gets pretty scary in terms of when you know all these other pieces are going on. So we know that we know the energy issue going on within China. We know the prices of coal. We know that they have uh, cities without power. We know that they are shutting down um, industries left, right and center. We know that they have supply chain bottlenecks. We know when they shut down a factory in China and then we know when they shut down a port, all this impacts you know down the pipeline for the rest of the world. We know that shipping containers have skyrocketed in price. So we don't know exactly how does the Chinese consumer spend their money and how well internally is the Chinese economy doing. And I think that's, I wouldn't say it's like the black swan, but it's the unknown piece when people are looking for that layman moment. Um, if the consumer is not doing well and China can't ring fence this the way they say they're they can they can ring fence this property issue just to bring this back. I, I think that's that could be the you know it, it, this, not the single catalyst, but it's going to be that a few things that come together that could say okay this is much worse. And that's actually what starts taking down you know that you start having contagion and you start having global risks and you start having actually concerns with energy prices. And, and that's when you know you can look at the consumer and you can try to back into some of the data sets and, and you can streamline it a bit and you can see that they've essentially flatlined. And they've deviated, if you chain it back to 2015, where, where you can say that there was some decent growth and they were really on the upswing. And then you saw like really 2014 into 2015 was this big move higher. And then they they uh, that was without as much stimulus. And then 2016, they wanted to goose it again. But that was when you started to see some deviation. And that was when you started to see some movements and shifts away and that's when you start looking at the underlying strength of the consumer and you can see it's actually moving, especially when you look at it on an average basis over the last two years, is falling in the wrong direction. But it's not when you think of, well, well, how can you be so sure? Well, let's look at PPI versus CPI. It's the widest spread it's been since 1996 because they're essentially saying, look, you can't pass that cost on to the consumer. That has to get passed on abroad because the consumer can't handle it. And so they're like, all right, well, but if I can't sell it in the open market, whose margins is this going to get hit? And that's when you start seeing how they've reduced tariffs. They've given uh, givebacks on some taxes based on what, what size you are and what your volumes are to try to keep some of these industrial um, uh, manufacturing side of the equation continuing and going. But now it's actually dipping below where it was if you chained it back to 2015. So now industrial production and manufacturing is rolling over. Now, you could say, well, how can you be so sure? But there's some things that don't lie, and those are boats. You can try to hide boats. You can turn off your AIS uh, transponder, you know, but uh, you, know, you can hope there's perpetual cloud cover. But we can always find those boats, especially when they're so close to the, uh, to, uh, the coast. And when you look at new imports, They've been da- they're actually in contraction. So when you look at new imports that are coming into, into China, 
it's on a contractionary level. When you look at new export data, it's in contraction. Backlogs are going up. So if you, you can think about this in the way of, well, I'm not going to order something new if I'm still waiting on my backlog to your point on, on right. congestions. But there's also this slowdown on what's being on what's being brought into the country. And I think that is when you start to see some of this panic, because how do you stimulate when you have multiple sides of your economic machine, if you will, coming down? And then when you, so you look don't, on- You don't stimulate, you, you, uh, inter, you, you get double down on your communist agenda and then right. it gets messy. And that's when you start looking at what they've started, what they've done. When you look at twenty, you know, just using twenty eleven to now, when when you're when you're growing at let's just use a round number of ten percent, but your debt to GDP is going up, it means that you're buying growth and you're not actually achieving it. So you're like essentially, yep. if you just simplify it, they're spending three dollars to make one, where you should be spending one dollar to make three. So they're going in the wrong direction, and this is during massive growth. So they were just tripling down on these debt levels to get to the other side. But at some point, you create a fiscal drag, which is what the PBOC is trying to address now right. by draining liquidity, trying to keep credit impulses down to take some of this excess debt out of the market and try to incentivize people not to roll it or just to roll it, not issue new debt. And that... but. The problem is the consumer is sitting thing. on so much of it yep. that they're also going to be impacted by that as they're as they're trying to find some sort of uh, you know stumbling growth engine to to really get the economy back to where it is, which is why four point nine percent. I mean, <laughs> just no. I mean, the Brooking. I think it's Brookings Institute did a did a breakdown over the last twenty years of Chinese data. And it says that you typically have to take it down by 2.3 to 3%. So no matter what you see, just assume it's worse by 3% and just on average. And, and I thought that was interesting because if you look at it, it's like if you told me that, you, that they grew in Q3 at a half, uh, you know, 50 basis points to 100 basis points, okay, I, I'm, I'm not going to fight that. I, I think that that could be a very doable number, but- that, that then takes them that much further away from their target of at least 6.5% growth this year. And that's why, so the, a few things just for the listeners is PBOC is People's Bank of China. Sometimes we, th we throw out these, these acronyms. For, so People's Bank of China, Deng was a, a former leader. So it's, it's multiple previous leaders uh, before Xi Jinping. Um, and your, uh, your comment that you just had on, uh, I just want to come back. Hold that. Hold the. Remind me of the thought you you just hadn't explained on this this GDP. But the boats. I think the zero COVID case strategy has a lot to. So you you always see these like wonky communist things like we're going zero COVID case strategy, and it is really weird because this is the country that supposedly only had four thousand deaths from COVID, um, but built all these you know incinerated a bunch of people. Um, so so we know that wasn't real, um, and we also know that they you know, they locked people in their homes and it was a really, really sad and, and horrific event. Um, and then we also know that they, they, they locked people in. And so then they opened up and they've been, people have been moving about and doing things. And only recently did they institute this sort of zero COVID case strategy. And you do have to, I, I, I'm really excited for this China Beige book because I, I haven't come across it, but you have to be listening to all these wonky, you know, different podcasts to hear these anecdotal evidence, like anecdotal things about and it was one that I came across on the zero COVID case thing. And I thought, are they serious about this? And they've been back and forth. They've actually had 
politician, you know, different leaders within China actually get in trouble because they weren't pushing the zero COVID case strategy enough. And then Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, who's just a puppet for the Communist Party, um, she doubled down. She's the leader of Hong Kong. She doubled down on the on the zero COVID case strategy. So Hong Kong is implementing as well. Well, Hong Kong, I mean, used to be a major financial center and a free country. No longer is since China has taken it over with their security law last year. But that is a huge ramifications when the zero COVID case strategy means that they're not letting nobody's coming in and out of China. So no, no uh, foreigners are coming in and out. And you could say that's you know, that's more of a this this doubling down these communist efforts, I think, as much as it is uh, potentially concerns about COVID. But the zero COVID case strategy allows them to shut down a port. And mm -hmm. so if you're talking about, well, you know, we we are trying to cook the books or we just don't want people to see exactly what's happening. It helps to say, oh, we had a COVID case. So we shut down the port for two weeks. In reality, we may not have had enough ac activity to actually be moving stuff in and out. 100%. And so I think. I think some of this, which is uh, awesome that you illuminated that. So thank you, because that that actually explains this a lot better, because I've been trying to put that, think about that in context. And I also think that we've, the narrative and the media has, uh, one, is bought and sold by, it pumps the China stuff way too much and is is way too, the, the media just does not criticize China at all. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say that, and you and I are never going to be allowed to go to China after. Uh, all, all <laughs> well, I, I, I joked that um, that at this point I'm probably on some great uh, list uh, that that I just should never be in in that area. And we, I actually put out that February article uh, podcast, and um, and then the following day they act uh, they you know a Chinese entity actually went in and hacked and tried to destroy the um, uh, the website. And luckily, like part of it, like we have multiple fail safes, but one of them is off is offline. And and this one actually had a fingerprints of an actual human, not just a machine going through oh, wow. and, and just trying to do a, a denial service. And it, it's interesting just because you, you you don't appreciate how much they probably know and listen and collect. And and not to say that we're anybody at this point, because Kyle Bass is obviously gonna be much, much higher on that target list. But the one thing that that is interesting, and and I've talked about what you're what you're discussing in shows and and insights, is that it's an outlet. It's okay. Well, there's one COVID case, and it might have been like a relative of somebody that works at the port, but shut it down. Just shut it down. Yep. Or it just, and, wait, it and just we'll, and, excuses. Yep. They need excuses. They need yep. to plug excuses on individuals. And when you look at Golden Week, so Golden Week was October first to seventh. They really tried to run a lot of things what hard. Is, and just for the listeners, explain. You mentioned that in the previous podcast. So Golden Week is a it, it's a it's a big festival. It's a big event, right? It's a holiday yes. week that so people would be going out and spending lots of money, and things would be great. Correct. They would be going out and spending money. You go and spend uh, spend time with uh, with family. You travel. You typically go home for this, and and it's a it's a big spending period because you know this is individuals going back to their to their roots. Families, you know, spend a lot of money on food and and having these big um big dinners. Right. But one of the things that that typically happens is September is normally a very big month for China because they try to get a lot of stuff uh, completed ahead of Golden Week. And because there's so much backlog, there was so much that had to be done. You had this massive push that happened in September. And coming to your point on on communism. They put an arbitrary carbon numbers and electricity consumption numbers back in January. And the problem is they blew through them in September because you had this massive push. So then all of a sudden you started to see like, oh, we have to take this down. And then obviously you had the electricity shortages because everybody was pulling at the same time. 
Back to your COVID points, there was a great article uh, from South China Press talking about how there's all of these uh, uh, coal shipments that are stuck at the border between Mongolia and, uh, and China because of COVID restrictions. And it's like they just can't get stuff through. So you have these, this huge supply chain error because provinces won't, don't want to risk you know, blowing up their COVID numbers. So then they do extra things that are stringent and you get these, these backdrops. But underlying pieces, you've since September, you've had a big drop off in steel production. You've had a big drop off again in aluminum produ- production. And there's a mixture of, well, is it because you made so much already? Right. Is it because right. you're slowing so much and you don't need it? Or is it just too expensive? And you're like, you know what? I'm not turning this back on. Well, if your thermal now- coal is 120 a ton, if, you, if exactly. your coal is 120 a ton, you are going to have some of those. But it's the it's the chicken and egg and like what caused it, I think, is what you're pointing out. And it's, it's right. it, this, is, this is why it gets really hard to decipher this stuff. And no matter what, you can just pull yourself back and say, it's a, it's a mess right now. Mm-hmm. Like it's a mess. And for, for, for a lot of us who've been looking at this and this is the, the politics of it getting, I, I'll, I'll flag one other book and it's Rush Joshi's long game book. So when you say like, when we talk about like the communist party doubling down, um, he does a really fantastic job and he does something that I've been doing, which is just going back to directly translated Chinese texts. Um, it's fantastic because he's one of the first scholars that just says, this has actually been the game plan from the very beginning and let me prove it to you. And it's extremely well done. Um, so if you're questioning what's what's actually happening in China, he's not really questioning. He's just saying doesn't matter who's in power. This is this was the plan from the very beginning. And so they're 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 working it out. Doesn't mean it's it's not extremely messy to do this stuff with a big economy. Um, it's it's really messy. And often what what has happened under Xi Jinping is that he is a um, is a big, strong, powerful leader. And when he came in, he did remove hundreds and hundreds of, of officials um, with this massive crackdown. And so when he prioritizes something, people are actually quite fearful of it now. And so when he says this is important, and that goes down to a provincial level, so if it was, say, pollution, or if it was, say, hitting a target, that people need to hit it. And what ends up happening is that same thing when they, you know, several years ago, um, they pushed small cities had been, you know, when they're trying to impact uh, pollution around 2008, you know, for the, the Blue Sky campaign for, for the Olympics, there were cities that that people froze to death because they didn't have the natural gas because they actually, they shut down the coal, they got rid of the coal fired power plants. They were supposed to have natural gas. The natural gas pipelines never came in. And these people literally froze because they didn't have it because they, they shut down this power. And that was provincial leaders. So because it's it, the way it functions that way, it's very, very messy and very top down. Also note on the GDP is that the Chinese 14 five-year plan, the 14 five-year plan, which is, this is something from a Lenin's, this is comes from the the Soviet Union, these five-year plans, these top-down mm-hmm. measures, um, those, uh, they usually have a GDP target in them, which is always, you know, they always end up hitting that target, you know, <laughs> ironic, you know, five years later. Amazing they hit how it. that works, right? <laughs> Just amazing. It's shocking. They don't have one in this one. And I think that's because they know they don't have a GDP target. And people are like, oh, that's so great. It means that they're not prioritizing economic growth. They're going to be prior- prioritizing the environment. And this is so awesome for CO2 emissions. And it's like, no, it has, this has nothing to do with the environment. This has everything to do with they're not they, they it's so bad that they can't cook the books that much more because it's you're not going to be able to say, well, it's five percent GDP growth and it's actually like one or two percent. And, right. you know, for the listeners who say, well, what does this have to do with with me? And, and what does that do is because if China is not growing, if China is not growing at near five percent and we know that they're not and all this sort of you see what, where, you know, what what are that what's their actual coal demand? What's their actual natural gas demand? What's their actual oil demand? And that oil demand, I think, according to BP data was what, 2021 
or 2020 was the the only country that actually grew was what 14.25 million barrels per day mm-hmm. was their oil demand. They produce about four to four and a half to five million barrels, you know, four and a half million barrels a day at most. And then the rest of that sort of imports and and we fudge with those imports because they've stockpiled so much crude, which was smart when it was cheap, and they can sort of use that number. And sometimes they stockpile to mask the data to make it look like they're importing a lot and they're growing um, economically. And sometimes they're just doing it because. But it's it's hard to really say what is their oil demand. And they are an economy that you do have to follow the oil demand because it's still a big piece no matter how many mm-hmm. um, electric vehicles they have. But it's huge because it's the growth story. And it's where if you're going to have economic growth, and it's a reality too that prices are high. Um, so it is impacting like oil prices, even if they're not passing those directly onto the consumer, it's hitting the government and oil prices in China are high. So in Asia, where we would would have the oil demand, prices are getting to the point and have been getting to the point for the past several months that they're getting too damn high and they're right. starting to impact uh, people's, uh, they're getting, they're weeding to their pocketbooks. I know I switch gears if you need to go back and then we can Oh, no, no, that, they, that's one of the, the big things. So one of the uh, pieces that I look at that I get the most uh, clarity on is uh, what's happening in Shandong. And when you look at teapot refiners, you can get, you know, so right now fuel oil is, is the, was the tell right now. Because fuel oil is the one that you can you can use and that you can see some switching. And when you look at what they're doing, they're hoarding a ton of fuel oil right now, especially at the teapot side, where it's the most ever that they've had in storage within this region. And the reason why that's so important is because they sell that in in into the country. So typically, the state-owned enterprises uh, and the state-owned refiners will purchase the fuel oil and then sell it and dis- disseminate it internally or yep. recrack it into something that they can be used and be sold within the country. So the fact that they're sitting there and sitting on such a large amount of it, then when you look at what's happening with South Korea with a record amount of LNG and storage, Japan well over the five-year uh, average, a record amount with, a, with several nukes coming back, and they're still going out there and purchasing fuel oil. And then you look at what's happening between Europe and Asia, which is going West Suez to East Suez, you're seeing a big increase of fuel oil exports going from Europe into Asia and Fujara at this point. And you're seeing some of this where they're looking at this and then they're hoarding. And the question is, is there going to be too much? Like, are they going to hoard too much? Or, and then you look at South Korea, Japan, India, increasing run rates and trying to really focus in on that middle distillate side, because that's where they see, you know, and that's where you can get some of the best margins. So a lot of this is happening before we've really hit winter. And the question is, then it obviously comes down to what is weather? And if weather doesn't come through, or does that mean you're going to be, you're going to have some prices come down? You'll see some more growth coming out of China because if they're not going to use it for heating, they'll use it to power some of these in- industries because right now there this is has a been very a big important freeze. Winter. What's up? This is a very important winter. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, and, 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 it's, and, and this is going to sound terrible, but I'm going to say it anyway. Unfortunately, it would be great if it was a cold winter because it would show how these policies that have been enacted for the last 10, 20 years are finally coming home to roost. Now, we could get a warm winter and the can can get kicked into next year, but we're still facing down the barrel of a gun that we're relying so much on renewables and peakers. And no matter what, there's just not enough redundancy in the system as we take baseload offline. So it comes back and forth to you know, do do we re- do we do we have the come to Jesus moment now? Is it next year? Is it the year after? But that's that's what we're looking at at this point. And and when you look at LNG, LNG is kind of that pivot of 
how much backstop can we get? How much LNG is sitting or, uh, you know, or natural gas is sitting in these regions? And unfortunately, just based on what we know with days of cover, a, a cold snap, which we'll define as something that comes into about 20 degrees Fahrenheit, you, the further you get below freezing, the faster that days of right. cover goes. So for an example, you look at propane, you know, when you look at three days of severe cold, as which we'll call zero degrees Fahrenheit, can pull 10 days of cover out of storage in three. So that's it's it's a it's a number that's good to see, but it it doesn't mean that it's perfect. And that's where it's gonna be, as you said, it's a very important winter. Okay, folks, my apologies for that abrupt ending with Mark Rossano. Uh that is the we had a long segment of part it was part two with with uh, with Mark Rossano um following up on episode 30. And we just recapped the um, all about energy and the um, all about China and the energy crisis. And we tried to put that together. The podcast actually kept going on another 45 minutes and we thought we'd break it up for listeners and doing this in in um, two parts. So part two is being broken up into two parts. And that was episode 31 recorded on Friday, October 22nd um, with Mark Rossano. That is, um, and we recapped everything on China and the energy crisis. So catch us next week and we will jump in right where we left off and we will um, talk about inflation, all the inflationary pressures going on in the market, investor pressure and ESG um, and U.S. oil equities. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.